Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. How can we reconcile the ideal church described by theology with the broken church that we see in the world? In his newest book, Flawed Church, Faithful God, Joseph Small argues that the church's true identity is known somewhere in the tension between the two. In it, he revisits familiar ecclesiological concepts, people of God, the body of Christ, the communion of the Holy Spirit. But rather than focusing on theological abstractions or worldly cynicism, he carefully evaluates the church in its scriptural, historical, theological, and social contexts. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Joe Small. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks. Good to be here. You have written this great book, Flawed Church, Faithful God, A Reformed Ecclesiology for the Real World. Now, I'm sure you're not talking about the MTV show, The Real World, right? (laughs) You're talking about the world we are living in today, Uh, as as opposed to like uh, false world ecclesiologies, right? (laughs) Well, not not an ideal world ecclesiology. I uh, saw Stanley Harawas once lecture uh, it. Princeton. And so I think Jeff Stout said to him, you know, where is this church you so famously talk about? Uh, or where's, or, or, or I said to Stout, where's this democracy you talk about? You know, I don't see this democracy you idealize. He's like, well, it's the same place that your church is located. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Stanley's better than most, but uh, theologians always tend to talk about the church that uh, exists in, in people's heads rather than the church that you experience Sunday by Sunday and the rest of the week by the rest of the week. It's the challenge, too, in, in writing something about the church. C.S. Lewis says that when you, when, stu- when you assign students you know, old books, the problem isn't the words they don't know, because a decent student will look them up. It's the words they think they know. And in writing something on the church, it strikes me that you know, you're in a situation where People, everybody thinks they know what the word means, which is part of the, the, the what you do admirably well in the book is, is do some dispelling that needs to take place right before the conversation can happen. Yeah, there's a lot of deconstruction that needs to happen. And it's not just the word church, which is a, an ambiguous word in the, in the best of times, but it's also uh, controlling metaphors for the church that are used, uh, body of Christ, people of God, community of the Holy Spirit. Uh, gospel, God, the word itself. People use these words and assume that everyone holds the meaning in common. And in fact, people just don't hold those meanings in common. Yeah. One of the most interesting things I found as you're sort of setting the table for the book, you talk about how you could, we could look at the church sort of theologically uh, uh, exclusively or sociologically exclusively or in historical empirical lenses. And we'd, we'd kind of miss the point Either way, right? That the that and that's some of the problem which you're trying to get at, right? That that either of these sorts of lenses give us a less than full picture of the thing itself. Yeah, the 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 image I use is that uh, theological talk about the church tends to paint a, a lovely portrait with all the warts removed and uh, 
person's looking 20 years younger than they really look. And sociology does a kind of documentary film of the church, uh, but without any attention to the church's uh, faith and and, uh, so on. So somehow both of those have to be brought into conversation. You have to keep keep your eye on what uh, theologically uh, the church is called to be, and you need to keep your eye sociologically on what the church actually is, and then try to deal with the tension between the two. There's this other kind of related tension. You know, I mean, Tim Keller in his wonderful book, Center Church, a conservative evangelical reform guy, he wrote this book and Center church, and it's all a sort of ecclesiology of balance, except in one section. He says, you know, the church is both an organization and organism, and the job of the pastor is always to fan the flame of the organism, or the, not, you know, not let the organization eat it. And I feel like if you're a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, right, the organic is the organization, right, and vice versa. If, That's exactly right. If you're a Southern Baptist or another kind of low church, evangelical Protestant, Never the twain shall meet, right? The organization's one thing, and you get into this talk about the invisible church. It's kind of hyper-invisible church. But they also have an easy time defining the church, right? But if you're something like what you are, right, which would be this kind of confessional Protestant, you know, ecumenical person— it gets a lot harder to say what the church is, right? <laughs> because it seems like the the Roman Catholic the East have an easier time, a, a, as do low church evangelicals. But you you want something a little more nuanced. Well, yeah, you need to deal with the church as it is. What you see is what you get. That's the church. But also, uh, l- along with that, is what the church is called to be. So that's talk about. The, what the church is called to be is different from talking about an invisible church or or, uh, or a church that exists uh, somewhere up in the ether. Uh, so if you talk about call, what the church is called to be away from its self-justification uh, to life uh, in Christ, then, then you've got a kind of dynamic tension rather than simply an ontological tension. Yeah, and I like how you say the church for what it is what it is right i mean but when you're saying what it is again you're not in the documentary portrait right because what it is is also the journey and pilgrimage it's on right and so it's it's always it's always on the way so to speak right so this is where maybe the documentarian doesn't get it's not that their warts aren't there it's that they're decontextualized from the story and journey that the church finds itself in right yeah, well, the, the church is on a journey, uh, but it's, it's certainly not a straight line journey. We're always wandering off into the weeds huh? and uh, getting getting ourselves lost. Uh, but nevertheless, we we work with, uh, we we live within uh, a faith, however loosely held. Uh, it's a it's a genuine faith in in the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we live uh, in a in a situation where. Christ is truly present, and Christ is truly calling us constantly to get back on the path, to get on the on the straight road, uh, and and stop trying to uh, go off and pick daisies on the side. It's interesting. I think if you look at the North American landscape, what happens in certain circles is you have people that grow up in conservative kind of evangelical homes, right? And they're, they grow up in Bible Christianity context with an inerrant Bible, and, and that's sort of the, the bedrock of faith, this biblical inerrancy. And then they go to college and learn some things, maybe even go to seminary and become pretty reflective, maybe even go to graduate school. And they realize that 
that sort of doesn't, this positivist understanding of inerrancy doesn't kind of cut it. So instead of an inerrant muscular Bible, they replace it with an, a, a sort of muscular ecclesiology, you know, w- whether it's through John Milbank or Stanley Harawas. So then what, what allows the credibility of the faith isn't this inerrant Bible it's the church and its story, and you talk about character ethics, and you 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 talk about something that's sort of replaced. Well, it's not the inerrancy, which I could prove to you from my Josh McDowell lectures. It's 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 the meaning we derive from Alistair McIntyre and all these other philosophers and stuff. And that's me. So it strikes me that you're trying to take the church seriously, but not make that move either. Well, that's right. You know, Stanley once I heard him once say that the only thing that all Protestants held in common was a, a, a belief in the real absence of Christ. Well, what does the real presence of Christ mean then? Huh? And it's not the presence of an idea. It's not the presence of a memory, uh, but it's a living presence. And so how, how do we then begin to line uh, the, the ways in which Christ is present to us? And uh, I try to, try to do that uh, in, in the book. So that we're not talking about something that's theoretical, but something that actually functions now so that we can reclaim a belief in the real presence of Christ, not a presence that's localized in bread or anything of the sort, but a real living presence of Christ, always calling the church to to something uh, that, that lies beyond itself and always calling the church to stop trying to justify its own life, to stop trying to be its own purveyor of, of religious goods and services. So that's, uh, I think it's a big task, and, and uh, I'm not sure I've succeeded totally, but I think I'm on the right track. Yeah, and you know, you have this great section in the book where you're talking about the real presence of Christ and the real absence of Christ, the, this church that lives in the time between the times. And it seems like a lot of controversial or doctrines that are contested in ecumenical dispute over the centuries are attempts to fill in the absence, right? Whether it's whether it's localized Eucharistic presence or something. Hey, we well in the absence we've got the host here, and that stands in. Or or maybe it's religious experience for a liberal Protestant in the 19th century, or maybe it's the second baptism of the Spirit for Pentecostals, or an inerrant Bible for certain Protestants. But it's the anxiety caused by the absence of Christ generally gets filled up, we, we, as opposed to like looking to what you're saying is the sacramental real presence, not one that we can ever put in our pocket, but one where God promises to abide with us in the time between the times. Well, right. I, you know, word that is a proclamation. Uh, whether it's preaching or teaching, whatever sacraments, baptism, and, and Eucharist, they don't they don't make Christ present. But what they do is, in a in a very pointed way, reveal to the church the real presence of Christ. So the, you see the difference. Yeah, yeah. You, so you never the, have it in your back not, pocket. Christ is only, yeah, Christ is not only present when the church is engaged in proclamation or sacraments, but it's proclamation and sacraments that focus the church's attention on the reality of the presence of the living Lord of the church. Uh, now, once, once, once one grasps that, then one can understand that Christ is present not just there, but always, always calling us as a body and as individuals uh, toward, uh, toward the kingdom. You know, it strikes me that this era we live in, in the kind of late modern West, may be the first era where a good number of Christians 
think they can be fully functional Christians without the church, right? And this is not just, it used to be more in evangelical circles, right, where, where the church was kind of an affinity group. The real thing was your personal relationship with Jesus, you know, and, and the church is kind of an affinity group to kind of, you know, bolster that commitment. But even among mainline Protestants, you know, we, we, you talk, you know, Bella's famous habits of the heart and the Sheilaism and the people that have mixed their own sort of beliefs, there are a lot of folks in, in mainline Protestantism that, that would self-identify in some survey as a Christian, but really don't see participating in, in, you know, what you say we have to remember is the body of Christ, not as a simile, but a real metaphor. They don't see that as really a living part of their faith, and, and, and they don't feel the worse off for it. Well, that's because the, the church now, the, the great problem of the church in America is that uh, the church in America acts as a purveyor of commodities, of religious commodities. It's an institution that uh, that tries to gain allegiance or loyalty to itself by providing a significant uh, suite of religious goods and services. And as a matter of fact, uh, if that's all the church is, then it doesn't surprise me that people find it uh, not worth the time. Uh, if you go to church on Sunday and don't encounter uh, there uh, the living God, but encounter instead uh, a series of not so subtle advertisements for for itself, then you might as well stay at home on Sunday morning, read the New York Times, and drink mimosas. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's and and that's absolutely a choice many people are making, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and and the church needs to realize that uh, it has it has created. Uh, the, the the atmosphere for its own demise, not demise in the sense of death, but its own shrinking. The, the number of people who are uh, regular, devoted uh, worshipers uh, declines in every in every church. John, it's interesting too. You mentioned in the book you talk about Douglas John Hall's revisiting of Luther's Heidelberg Disputation. Right? We we it was just a five hundred. Mm-hmm. 100th anniversary of the Reformation, and we heard a lot about Wittenberg and the 95 Theses, but this is one that is less talked about very often. But you talk about the, the church needing to live in the theology of the cross versus, you know, Luther contrasts that to the theology of glory, which is usually the human sort of Promethean promote ourselves and become d- right. dispensers of religious goods or services or, or propping up humanity in some other way. I mean, that... It, it seems like that is lost, again, in lots of places in North America. You have conservative evangelicals who often have a theology about the cross, right? And if you don't have penal substitution or whatever, you, you, don't, have it, you, you don't have it right. But that doesn't sound like what you're talking about. And then you have mainline people that will talk about mainline decline, but almost celebrate it. Like, that. we're so faithful, that's why we're in decline. <laughs> Neither of those seem right. like the, the, the tone that you're talking about with recovering Luther's insight of the theology of the cross. Well, one of the things when I when I talk about the church, the, the metaphor of the church is the body of Christ, and and it is a it's a metaphor. It's it's, it's complex. It's not just an image. It's a complex trope. Well, if you talk about the body of Christ, if you look at the at the text in the New Testament, you realize that you're not talking about the glorified body of Christ. You're talking about the wounded, crucified body of Christ, uh, because. In the New Testament, even the risen Christ still has nail marks in his hands and a gash in his side. Huh? Uh, 
the, the risen Christ appears as a, as a slaughtered lamb. And so the church, if it is the body of Christ, uh, is a, a church that should not be surprised uh, by its own uh, participation in Christ's sufferings. Uh, it should not pretend that it's simply a resurrection people, uh, quite apart from, from the cross. So it's all part of the church's uh, attempt to, to justify and promote itself. And the cross is a very inconvenient way to promote and justify this, uh, an institution. But that strikes me, though, what you're saying as one of the most powerful missiological and maybe apologetic points for a cultural context where people, where the the lack of participation in traditional religion, like, you know, going to synagogues or mosques or churches is going down. But that's not corresponding with a dramatic rise in atheism or anything. But people who look at the, the, the look and see only the organization or the flawed institution and not anything organic or real, the real power, like what it seems to me what you're saying is no, you're really experiencing it. It's Luther Simon used to set Picado. It's always a mixed bag. And that's not despite what we believe. That's part and parcel and at the heart of what it means to to confess Christian faith. That that at, in the midst of the confession is is a mixed bag making it. Well, I think that's right. And and I think one of the reasons for that, Scott, is that uh as I try to deal with a couple of chapters, uh, the church uh, has looked upon itself as better than Israel. We're, we're the people of God. We're the good people of God. They're the bad people of God. Uh, always uh, messing things up, uh, always engaged in, in sinful uh, neglect of, of the God who called them to be. But uh, when, we, when we look at Israel as something that is a failed experiment uh, of the past, then it's easy to look at ourselves as uh, the, the the better replacement for Israel. But as a matter of fact, uh, it's the same God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who called Israel to faith, who calls us to faith. And uh, what we need to do, I think, is, is reclaim uh, the Old Testament as Christian scripture that helps us to understand that Israel helps us to understand who we continue to be uh, as God's people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that's significant. I think, right? You're talk, and you talk about the in your in your book is this church of word and sacrament. That word isn't just proof texting or or doing Bible studies, but this proclamation is 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 lifting up the gospel in in the context of this whole story of the people of God. And that kind of perspective, right, is what is is sort of the corrective to some of these problems, right? That, 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 that sort of, the church then can see itself in continuity. I mean, I, oftentimes people think, well, if I could see these miracles or something, I, I'd believe. Well, no, you're not any better than the Israelites or some of the people that saw Jesus do some amazing things and said, crucify him, crucify him, right? Right, right, exactly. So, yeah, um, if, if, you look at, if you look at the life of, of Israel, what you look at is a flawed people of God and a faithful God, a God who remains faithful to Israel throughout. Uh, and when you look at the church, you look at, at a church which is, which is flawed, uh, but which is still uh, held uh, in, in the grace of God and is called to be then a witness to the world. And you mentioned missiology before. What, what kind of witness to the world 
uh, does does the church in North America present? Uh, I think what it does is is to present uh, an advertisement for itself, and uh, that is a far cry from from witness to the living Lord of the church. Yeah, right. I mean, there's something about when the church is at its best; it's extrinsic, right? I mean, you you that it it's not thinking. It's sort of like is this sort of a Luther sort of issue with good works, right? Like, yeah, you do something like really thoughtful for your spouse because they're tired. So, you know, you load the dishwasher, do something else for them. But then the moment you start to think, ah, I'm a pretty good spouse that I thought of that. The beauty of the beauty of the loving thing you did is dissipated, right? Because it's eaten up by your own self-righteousness. It's almost like the, the minute the church begins to, to talk too much about its own witness, the thing dissipates. Yes, and and uh, you look at uh, the difficulties that uh, churches have these days. Not just the Catholic Church, but churches generally have these days with uh, sexual uh, improprieties of, of various sorts, from from the minor to the to the very serious. I think uh, those those uh, those events, those 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 things that that happen, are in part. Uh, done to protect the church, to protect the institution of the church, so that you've got people behaving badly, but it all being covered up, uh, protected from public view, because the church needs to be protected, rather than the church uh, acknowledging uh, the fact that uh, it is it is a, a community of, of sinners, uh, many of whom uh, are going to, uh, to, 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 to behave badly. But who need to be called to account for that, uh, not not to engage in church protection. Yeah, that, I mean, it seems like the that, that is it, it, the the defensive posture of the church in any sense, right? Is kind of contrary to the the theology of the cross. And yet, I mean, it, it seems like it, it's interesting because you think in high Christendom, you can see where the church is can can sort of hold its own power too tightly or, or flex its own muscles too tightly. But even in a post-Christendom kind of age, it just, some of that grasping and defensiveness just manifests itself in different ways, right? Sure. Sure. It's, uh, it's all part of the, the churches promoting itself. Uh, I'm, I'm a listener to uh, NPR public radio. And there are spots on public radio uh, every every so often uh, from churches uh, who, who sponsor, and they get a little tagline for uh, promoting promoting themselves. And what they always promote is uh, a, a concert uh, or a, a play or something of that sort that the public would be invited to. And what you never hear is anything uh, about. Uh, the church's actual faith. It's just about the church's activities that will be appealing to people, and so all are invited to come. Well, if that's the best the church can do in terms of promoting, of of showing itself to the world, then it, we shouldn't be surprised that people may go to a concert, but they're not going to show up for anything else. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? 
Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. I've had someone on the podcast recently. She teaches political science at Penn, Michelle Margolis, and she she's written some stuff in the New York Times, and she just wrote a book uh, from politics to the pews where she's got some pretty fascinating research where she says it's not just that religion's driving politics, but politics is now driving religion such that if you're a young ad- at the young adult age and you haven't been around church for a while, but you're at that age where you're marrying and thinking about kids and things like that and thinking, well, maybe I'll go back to, to the church, that your, part, w- w- that your religious sort of habits are not yet formed, but your partisan ones often are. And so if you're a Republican, you'll probably go back to church. If you're a Democrat, you won't. <laughs> And it's funny because you see this on on places like you know, conservatives on Fox News, right? Who who are atheists will still defend the goods, the you know, the church and the war on Christmas. And Christians on MSNBC, who are faithful Christians, don't talk about it very often. So it's it's almost like the, you know you have this other dilemma where people, you know, there it's not just it's not that religion's driving political convictions, but the the, the politics seems to be swallowing up the church. Well, it is, and I think, but but it's not just a phenomenon on the right. It's also a phenomenon on the left, uh, because uh, progressive people um, will not be attracted to progressive churches because the progressive issues that progressive people are interested in uh, are are better pursued elsewhere. There are other organizations in the, in the culture, in the society, that uh, deserve their time and money more than than the churches. And even among evangelicals, um, the, the percentage of so-called self-identified evangelicals, uh, many of them Republicans, who actually uh, participate on a regular basis in a church uh, is, is actually a minority of this demographic called evangelical Protestants. Yeah, there's some interesting demographic work on that, right? Like just recently, I think the Cato Institute did something where, where people that regularly go to church don't share Trump's populism as much as the people that don't like the, the, the conservatives who might check Christian as a nationality or something, but their cultural conservatives tend to have tend to buy into some of the harsher rhetoric around race and immigration than people who are evangelical, but actually go to church. Yeah. It's, um, 
Well, you know the old saw, uh, the church is called to be in but not of the world. And uh, what we have is a church that is uh, of but not in the world. <laughs> so given that, um, it's not surprising that uh, participation uh, in church life uh, is on the decline. And it is on the decline in evangelical as well as in progressive uh, ends of the spectrum. The, the days of the big mega church now, sociologists tell us, is soon coming to an end. Uh, they're having difficulty maintaining budget and size um, because, because, again, the church is presenting itself as an institution. And after a while, you begin to, uh, uh, to tire of church's constant self-promotion. I, I, I'm curious, you, this, your book is, I would say, something that requires some theological lifting, right? I mean, it, it's, it, you, you would have to have a sort of, you know, theological palette, you know, where you'd want to actually deal with some of the intellectual heft of the church's, you know, theological and spiritual traditions. And it strikes me that a lot of people outside the church might find this kind of curious, but a lot of clergy people, whether in their mainline circles or evangelical circles, are just not all that theological. Well, yes. What is what is theology? It's it's uh, talk about God. It's thinking about God. And if you look at uh, kind of best-selling uh, uh, books on ministers' bookshelves, they're all kind of how-to books. They're here's here's the latest strategy to make your church go and grow. And so if people are, if, if pastors, not because they're bad people, but pastors are, are in a situation in which it is assumed that their task is to, uh, to make the church uh, grow in terms of membership and budget and activity, uh, to present more and more appealing programs that will attract more and more people, then um, theology becomes irrelevant to that. And, and theology as an expression of, of faithfulness becomes irrelevant to that. Yeah, and, and I, I'm, I'm curious, you went to seminary several decades ago. and, yeah, and more, more than several, actually. But. Several is an inclusive term. You know, it's, a, okay. it's like 40 days and 40 nights in the Bible. You know, so okay, good. Of time. I, I wonder, when you were fresh out of seminary from, and from now, you know, from, from what you thought about then and what sort of animated you then, and the Joe Small that's written Flood Church Faithful God, like what's different and what were the turning points? I mean, were there things that, that you learned in seminary that you had to unlearn or were there experiences you had that, that put you on a path to call the church towards something that, again, is, is more robustly theological in, in understanding than most of the things you're seeing on pastor shelves? Well, uh, I won't bore you with my whole biography, but but. I did not grow up in the church. Uh, my family never went to church. Uh, I had nothing to do with the church until actually until I went to seminary. And I went there just out of curiosity for a year before I went to law school. And um, so from the very beginning, uh, the church was not something that I had, I had grown up in and, and could take for granted. But I had to, to look at what this expression of Christian faith and life was, was all about. And I was struck from, uh, from seminary days on with the, the disjunction between what, what I was reading theologically about the church and what I was observing and participating in actually about the church. So 
ideal church and actual church has always been, uh, and throughout my thinking about the church, uh, a, a tension point and trying to understand that, that tension point. Uh, I'll give you one kind of interesting example. My first year in seminary, Students didn't work in churches. We were assigned to churches uh, to to live in for a year. We couldn't help with the youth group or participate in the choir or anything of the sort. And uh, here I am, a kind of naive white kid from New England, and and I'm assigned to the Wesley Center African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church in the Hill District of Pittsburgh. It's my first. I, I know the church. I've been to that church. Yeah. Well, that was my that was my first worshiping congregation. The next, the next year, I'm doing field work, and I'm in a a, a, a large, wealthy uh, Presbyterian church in Mount Lebanon, which is a Tony kind of suburb of, of Pittsburgh. Now, both of those those two churches were very, very different, obviously, uh, for a, for a whole lot of reasons. But the, the difference was uh, between what was actually going on there for <clears throat> for better or for worse. And what I was reading in uh, uh, theological theological literature, so trying to trying to put that that experience that tension experience together is something that's occupied me for, as you say, several decades. And flawed church, faithful God is uh, my my best effort, at least my best effort to date, uh, to to try to work through uh, that that tension in a way that I think is faithful both to uh, what the church is called to be and, and what the church actually is. What did your family say when you went to seminary? Did they think you were crazy? Well, uh, (laughs) my father was horrified, uh, (laughs) but uh, actually uh, he, I I think started to go to church. He was just curious about what his son had gotten himself into and became a very faithful uh, churchman. Uh, my my mother uh, only darkened the door of a church when her son Joey was preaching. So <laughs> that's one evangelism strategy. Yes, right. I, I'm curious, as somebody who has been not just a minister but a, a sort of theologian for the church, for the Presbyterian Church, what's it like going for you, going to church for you on Sundays? I mean, is it are you is it? Uh, a masochistic sort of experience. If, if you're listening to the announcements and it's the self promotion of things like you're talking about stuff. I mean, how do you how do you live in the actual church? Well, it's it's uh, I, to be honest with you, it's it's difficult sometimes. The church where I worship is uh, uh, actually, I think, a, a, a good and faithful congregation, but it but it also is trapped in uh, the realities of church culture. So. Uh, it is always uh, drawing attention to itself and trying to to promote itself. And uh, there are Sundays when I wake up and the New York Times beckons and uh, maybe a mimosa as well. Uh, but I usually uh, usually manage to get myself there. And uh, I'm impressed by the fact that uh, what what I what I what I experience in that church is on the part of many many people uh, a genuine hunger and, and thirst uh, for the, the real presence of God and a hunger and thirst, which is only partially satisfied. And um, well, there it is. I've been a pew sitter now for 25 years. Uh, I've suffered through a lot of dreadful sermons and I've heard a lot of very good ones. Uh, I've, I've suffered through churches that uh, 
pay only attention to themselves and and churches that uh, that, that work to settle refugee families and uh, uh, other other extrinsic works like that. So the church is a mixed bag. It's never it's never totally uh, totally good, uh, totally what what it should be, but but neither is it a, a total flop in the world. Uh, and what the church needs to do, I think, is to draw its own, draw attention to its its own strength, which is does not reside in itself, but resides uh, in its Lord, and to draw on that strength rather than try to rely on its own strength. It, it, you know, when I read someone like G.K. Chesterton, right, there's somebody there that seems to have a sanctified imagination, right? He's able to talk in imaginative ways about the. Christ who is absent and yet present. And so there's another theologian I can think of, Thomas Halik. It's funny, I'm naming all Catholics, but Halik is a Czech thinker. I'm wondering, it strikes me that a lot of what is going on in the training of ministers isn't that, right? It, it, but it seems like if what you're talking about is the church's real strength is is lifting up, is lift high the cross, right? That great hymn is, 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 yes, is yeah. pointing to the mystery of Christ in the world. It, it's it, it seems like we need to train the church's leaders to be better at naming that and seeing that and and, and it, it strikes me that that's not primarily what the goal of pastoral formation is these days like that's not it, it doesn't seem like that's where we're putting all our energy so increasingly the the so-called practical fields uh, in theological education uh, can multiply exponentially. Uh, serious work in theology, uh, history of doctrine, church history, uh, even biblical studies begins to to wane. And I think that's a, a, a recipe for disaster. And one proof of that, I think, is uh, the Association of Theological Schools uh, some years ago, five, six, seven years ago, did a, a rather extensive survey of people who had been uh, in the pastorate for five years, 10 years, and 20 years, and asked them, what do you wish you had had more of in seminary? People who were out for five years said, well, we wish we had, had more training and stewardship and management and so on, so on. Uh, and 20 years out, people were saying, I wish I had more theology, more biblical studies, more church history, more ethics, because you can't, you, you can't keep going uh, on, on a tank uh, of fuel that's only filled with practical ideas. Uh, because those practical ideas are going to begin to wear thin. Uh, they will not work as well as they're, they, they're promised to work. And so where are you left? You're left with, with uh, no, no resources to continue. If the church isn't, isn't uh, in existence to bear witness to uh, the living God, then it shouldn't be in business. Yeah, and those practical things too, aren't they often the things that will, because they're the most contextual, they're the thing that whose time will pass the fastest. And oftentimes because the church is usually looking at somebody else, the business community or social sciences, the church is usually five or 10 years late anyway. So <laughs> the process of yeah. learning, it's going yes. out of style anyway, right? Well, yes. And, and in seminary, you can't learn about uh, church administration when you're not, you're not in a church because then it's only theoretical that's that's the 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 ironic thing about practical disciplines in seminary is that they're very theoretical they don't deal with with real situations at all because they can't 
they're they're an educational institution, not a church. And churches is where you, is where you where you can learn uh, things about uh, stewardship and uh, running an, uh, an organization and so on. What is there on the horizon that gives you? I mean, you conclude the book with a church with a, a chapter on the church's hope, and I'm, I'm thinking: Are there thinkers who are writers or, or people who are particularly who give you hope? Who who are manifestations of that hope? Who are who are kind of getting it and and actually doing work that you think is, hey, this is really salient for the church for the church. I you know that I'm writing for here. Well. You're you're going to laugh at this, but um, when when I retired, I set myself uh, uh, a project, and I was going to read uh, Bart's dogmatics from page one till page I don't know how many tens of thousands of pages later it was, but, but from start to finish, I'd read around in Bart for a long time, but had never read it all uh, the dogmatics straight through, and. Um, I find I, I continue to find Bart uh, the the most uh, interesting, compelling, uh, uh, provocative, uh, uh, thoughtful writer uh, on on Christian faith and, and life. And Bart was someone who was uh, thoroughly honest about uh, the reality of the church and thoroughly honest about what the church is called to be. Church is called to be a, a, a witness to, to, to Christ and through Christ to God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit uh, in, in the world. That's what the church is called to be. And, and Bart continues to uh, uh, challenge me and uh, provide me with uh, uh, a, a way to think through the church's hope because the church's hope does not lie in itself. It's not what we hope for, but it's in whom do we hope. And the church's hope lies uh, in, in God and not in uh, a new and improved institutional life. Joe, that's, I, yeah, yeah, truer words never spoken. And thanks for writing a whole book to that end, Flawed Church, Faithful God. And thanks for spending some time talking with me about it. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Joe for coming on the podcast. Check out his book, Flawed Church, Faithful God. You will not regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.